I had literally no business doing this, right? And I know that sounds maybe overly humble, but truly, you don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a product genius. You don't have to be that crazy entrepreneur. I realized long ago that you kind of don't need a label. That's the voice of Julia Hartz, co-founder and CEO of Eventbrite. From its founding in 2006, Julia has shown the ability to grow with the company at every step of the way, even past its IPO. And in 2020, she dealt with one of the most challenging business catastrophes in the history of tech. This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's go time with Julia Hartz. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. Imagine you've been a driving force for a startup you founded for almost 15 years. You take it public as the CEO, and then out of nowhere, a pandemic hits. Your whole business is dependent on in-person events to make money. Do you even have a business anymore? You have to decide what to do under the watchful eye of Wall Street. You have very little information about what lies ahead. This is what Julia Hartz had to face at the beginning of the outbreak of COVID-19. How did she prioritize the critical decisions? How did she weigh vital trade-offs with almost no time or data? And what changes got her way outside of her comfort zone? We are lucky that not only was Julia willing to share her views on this, but also on the origin story of Eventbrite and its path to greatness. Let's catch up with her. Julia Hartz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Oh, yeah. I've been looking forward to it because um, not only did you found a a great company, but you've really stuck with it, right? And and now you're public company CEO. So uh, I think people are going to really like to hear your story. So you grew up in Northern California. Did you ever have any exposure to technology growing up more than most normal people do? Or were you just maybe used? Not at all. Okay, no, okay. I grew up in Santa Cruz, which, as you know, for, for Bay Area folks, is a very small, insulated beach community. You know, I think that we're sort of well known for the natural beauty, some of the most beautiful beaches, but also Jack O'Neill uh, lived there for years yep. and years. Let's just say for sake of imagination, as I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was no talk of the tech industry where I was growing up. When I turned, I think, 14 or 15, when I could work, I worked on the weekends at at a local coffee shop called The Ugly Mug. And resume building was the farthest thing from my mind in those days. Yet when I look back, I had the best customer service training during that job. There was a woman who would show up before we opened and we opened at like 5.30 AM or something crazy. And she would stand outside and she'd wait for me to open the door and she'd stomp in and I would make her drink and she would be unhappy about it every single weekend. And it took me about five months to realize that she just wanted someone to talk to. 
And so I started bringing in the local newspaper and talking to her about what had been written the day before and trying to get her on a different topic. And that made all the difference in the world, but really tracking that journey of a customer and understanding what she wanted was my first on the job training around how to build a better experience for a customer. So, you know, those things you never forget. Um, And that's, that's the value of having a real job. Okay. So, so, so that, so Pepperdine, right? So you went to Pepperdine and you studied broadcast journalism, I guess it is then. Yes. Broadcast journalism. And now I've, I've heard though that, I don't know if this was while you were at college or maybe right after, but that you, you were working with some of the people who discovered like the Jackass show and that, uh, yes. and I guess maybe you were, um, an intern on the set of friends. Yes. So then, so it sounds like your early career actually in media was pretty, pretty fruitful, right? You were sort of on a, on a track of being probably an industry executive. So like what, what took you off that track and on track to San Francisco and startups, like pretty different worlds. (laughs) Well, I definitely have never been one to like waste time, right? I've never been a person who will go off metaphorically at speaking into a, into like a, a windy road. I'm a pretty straight shooter in terms of ambition to to goal realized. And really my my career in television started when I was at college. And that that's now looking back, that makes a lot of sense because I was always sort of wanting to do things early. I graduated college when I was 20. And so I worked for five years in the industry. And you're right, I would, I I, I mean, I think I told you this. I would be, you know, in the upper echelons of a network at this point, you know, maybe even president of a network. And I had no qualms with my career progression. I was sort of a mid-level executive at 25 and at at 23, rather, I I went to a wedding of my first boss at MTV. She married a classmate from Stanford of Kevin, of Kevin's classmate from Stanford. And it was like these two factions in the church in Santa Barbara. It was the cool TV kids and then the like, overachieving neurotic Stanford crowd. (laughs) And, um, and there was about a 10 year age gap between me and them because, you know, I was just like junior, right. So I was thinking, God, everybody here is married. You know, I'm 23. I'm not really looking to start, you know, anything serious. And I sit next to, I just happened to sit down at the edge of the pew because I was reading in the wedding. I had to I read or I got to read. I should say it was a pleasure to read in the wedding. But at 23, I was sort of nervous, you know, like, okay, I don't want to mess this up. I've never read in a wedding. And so I sat at the edge of the pew and I had to ask this guy to get up and move over to make room for me. Well, as I'm more like sitting through the ceremony, this this guy keeps chatting with me and I'm sort of like, it's not cheesy. It's more like a, like a golden retriever, you know, uh, like a, yeah. like a persistent, sweet, yeah. but sort of very persistent person. And so I go up and I do, I do the reading and I come down, I come back and I sit down and, and he proceeds to say something like that was incredible. I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, what is go? You know? And I remember after the wedding, we're all standing on the stairs and the bride and groom come running down and I see him across the way. And I think like, Oh, there goes a great one. I'll probably never see him again. You know, my cynical 23 year old mind. And 
at the reception, there were about 300 people at the wedding. And at the reception, I was standing with a group of MTV, you know, teammates. And um, all of a sudden, my boss kind of looks at me startled and I turn around and there's Kevin standing there. There's the golden retriever with a tray full of drinks just infiltrating the cool kid circle. And I sort of was like, oh, okay, it's on, um, you know, and, and that was it. And literally it was love at first sight. And we did, ha- we have this age gap that he really loves when I, when I point that out of, of 10 years. I'm sure he's thrilled. And it just, it just worked. You know, he was sort of ready to stop dating around. I was, of, I guess, older for my age, soulfully. And we just started to see each other. He was in San Francisco working on his second startup. I was in LA working on my career. He would come down on a weekend and um, I would take him to the MTV movie awards. Then I'd fly up the next weekend and, you know, he would take me to like a speed chess match party at Peter Thiel's loft. I mean, it was just like neurotic (laughs) things. It's really crazy. And I was, that's when I realized there was a whole world up here that I hadn't experienced. And ultimately I felt like I was in the wrong industry. And so this feeling of, wait, I need to be where things are moving faster than where I am now. And I saw the writing on the wall in a weird way, like the revenue, the ad model for television was broken. And we were trying to sort of plug the gaps with product placement. Like I would be spending time on the phone with Dennis Leary, trying to explain to him why he had to hold the Miller light bottle for seven seconds on rescue me. And the Miller light people or the Anheuser-Busch people were really upset because, you know, it was, it was just crazy. And so I thought like, wow, there's something's happening here where technology is going to run straight through Hollywood. And I want to, I don't know, I want to be like on the right side of this equation. So up until this point in life, then I guess you wouldn't have necessarily thought of yourself as an entrepreneur. You were, I mean, you wanted to get ahead, you were ambitious, you were in a hurry, but you didn't think of yourself as a startup person necessarily, certainly not a tech person. Not at all. On the, the first day of the job, I realized that the whole the whole way that I learn is visually and by doing. Uh-huh. And I'm a fast learner. Yep. And that was kind of all I needed to get by, even though I was sort of chuckling as we were pushing sawhorses and plywood into a windowless phone closet um, on Utah Street in Potrero Hill, you know, having gotten free space, like, you know, but we got the phone closet. We got relegated to the phone closet. And uh and I was thinking, and I opened the laptop and I'm like, now what? And I started digging through the old archives of the customer inquiries that had been coming in around this, this ticketing for kind of freeware ticketing app that, at, that Alan and Kevin had, had built sort of along the same time that they were toying around with what became Zoom, all based on the PayPal platform, right? All built sort of powered by the PayPal API. Mm-hmm. And I started just digging in because people were still using this thing, even though nobody had worked on it for about two and a half years. Hmm. And in those archives and in the unanswered customer emails, I just found something really beautiful, which are these community organizers, creators of live experiences, 
And I thought it was really fascinating. And so that's quite literally how Eventbrite was born, was just looking at what is the problem that these people have and how can we build technology to help them become more successful? I had literally no business doing this, right? And I know that sounds maybe overly humble, but truly, I, I just want everyone to understand that like, <laughs> if, if you have attributes of like critical thinking, you're a fast learner, you find something you're passionate about, you don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a product genius. You don't have to be that crazy entrepreneur. I think Kevin and I make a great team because I was passionate about evoking emotion from a, a group of customers and helping them achieve their, their goals. And Kevin was passionate about the product and how it functioned and what it did for people. And so, you know, I think like there was a lot of sort of natural yin and yang for us. Um, but I would say he was stronger on the entrepreneurial side and I was stronger on the operating side. So I realized long ago that you kind of don't need a label. But then when you got started, then was it, were you persuading Kevin, Hey, let's turn this ticketing side hustle into a real company or was he persuading you or was it kind of all of the above? Well, I, I think the thing that people don't realize, and even we have a hard time remembering, um, is just how, is just how small it started. Right, so it started yeah. literally with me setting up the like email queue, or going into the email queue, then figuring out like what software we should be using to actually help these people. And then we had to find our third co-founder because neither of us are engineers. So we found Renault Visage through the, Zoom, through the network of Zoom. And we really came at it from three different angles. I came at it from my last experience actually at FX Networks, which is where I went after MTV before I left to come up here, was to build the, the reality series arm of FX. And through that, we wanted to do a lot of docu-series work. And through that, I actually went deep into fandoms. And so I went to all these fandom conventions to really understand like what makes people have this connectivity around something and have this irrational and unconditional yeah. love. And I remembered that and I thought, God, that is interesting. And this, this actually could be connected to that. Renault came at it from, he's a world-renowned photographer, as was his father. And he came at it from, could we help people turn their passion into profit? Um, which we honestly didn't know would be so big when the recession hit. So that was a weird sort of fortuitous thing. And then Kevin came at it from, microtransactions and, and being able to, to power these transactions in an economical fashion so that you could democratize an industry. So you know, for him, it was always the big bad gorilla that's like stealing money from innocent people through their exorbitant fees. How could we come in and disrupt those industries yeah. by democratizing it? So we all kind of came at it from our, from our different angles, but it was it wasn't one of us that pushed for it because none of us were making money. We bootstrapped the company. It was the traction. And I think that was really good for, for especially Kevin to stay very neutral on that because he was still, he was still involved with zoom and they had, you know, they had hired someone to come in as CEO, but he was still like helping them figure out strategically where they were going to go. And then, you know, so he kind of had, he had a day job and then 
we started to gain more and more customers and it was sort of the perfect time for him to make the leap and, you know, hand the full keys to, to the new CEO who who's John Coons, um, who's amazing. And so it was just sort of this natural evolution and it probably happened like in six months time. Okay. So by January of 2006, we were off and running the three of us, um, okay. working on, on Eventbrite full-time. And so what was it just for people who aren't that familiar? Cause I mean, we've got folks in 155 countries listen to this. Uh, how does the Eventbrite business work? How did it work then? And how's it changed over time? So Eventbrite is a self-service platform that focuses on helping event creators save time and reach a larger audience for their event. And we focus specifically around the event lifecycle where you are publishing your, you know, landing page for your event, for your event to your front door, and you're promoting your event and you're managing ticket sales. Mm -hmm. And then you're analyzing what worked and what didn't work. And you can, you know, rinse and repeat. And the things that we, we did a lot of things wrong or not wrong, but I I would say we, we went against conventional wisdom in a few different ways when we were getting started. The first thing we did is that we launched with the, with PayPal as our payment provider, which meant that we were available to transact in over a hundred countries. Okay. The second in, in, you know, conventional wisdom is like, start with one geo and then build out from there, you know, figure out what works and then. Yeah. Get, do all the events in San Francisco before you go to LA. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The second thing we did was focus on any kind of event. And that was a real sticking point for people, especially in our first fundraising round, which we can talk about, but staying horizontal was sort of like the thought of as like the dumbest strategic choice you can make because, you know, conventional wisdom would say, get to know one segment of your customer through a vertical strategy and get it right. And then run that playbook against other verticals. Yep. But we felt like with our ethos of democratization, we wanted event creators to be our focus, not the content that they produced, because that could change, right? And new content, new, we call them categories, but you could also call them verticals. New event categories were going to emerge on the platform all the time if we did our job right, because we were creating market opportunity. And as consumers want to gather in different ways, creators are are generating that content and supply to meet the consumer demand. Right. And then the final thing is that we, so we set our, we, we literally looked around the internet to find anybody else who was doing anything remotely similar to what we were doing and what they were charging. And we set our ticket fee at lower than that. Okay. And the notion there was, we wanted to focus on volume versus versus take a huge rip of a ticket that was going to be a low cost anyways, a low low price ticket. Um, and then the final thing is we were getting married. Okay. <laughs> you weren't supposed to start a company with people getting married. I mean, uh, or with someone you were going to marry. So you weren't even married yet, even. We weren't even married. I mean, when you take me back to March of 2006, here's the visual. I have a plywood and sawhorse desk. I have wedding invites 
up above my head in, in height that I'm trying, attempting to hand calligraphy. Oh, oh, the days of, of, you know, when we were so ideal, I was slowly hand calligraphing them and answering customer support emails, doing QA for Renault, um, figuring out SEO and SEM and how to run Google AdWords campaigns. And, you know, like we had a wall of cup of noodles and that's how we, how we existed really. Cause we didn't have a ton of money and we were putting all of our money. I mean, Kevin was really true about that. If we were, we were putting all the money into Eventbrite. So it was, you know, every check came out of our own checking account. Um, so that's, that, that was it. That was the, those were the good old days. So did the Eventbrite concept then take off sort of right away or was it more just like it's a hobby that's becoming a business that you invest in and just before you know it, it's become something? So it wasn't really a hobby. I mean, we set out to to build a business, but we did take these gates. I mean, it's in, in, in my, you know, I feel like such an old oldie now when I talk to people about how we spent less than $250,000 in the first two years. Yeah. Right. And we didn't raise money until four. Then, then we broke even. Then we didn't raise money until four years, until a total of four years into the. So, you know, wow, uh, that's a different story than today. But I think that we always knew that we set internal milestones for ourselves. We we said, you know, if we get to this point, we'll keep going. If you get to this point, we'll keep going. And lo and behold, we kept going. And it wasn't a, a hockey stick. If you look at Eventbrite's growth over the last close to now 15 years, it's really steady, but it's like super, super solid. The thing that I can yeah. say about our business, which we'll get to in a minute, is that the resilience of this business is quite profound, right? Yeah. And so, and I think that's because we've built the flywheel over a course of a long period of time. And we always knew that instead of going out and sort of paying for customers, that the best advertising would be event invitations. And so we really created that flywheel very early on. And we started to see, we would, we had this interactive map where it would light up whenever a ticket was bought and it would light up wherever the event was happening. And we started to see sort of this growing node, definitely in the Bay area. Some of our earliest users were tech bloggers um, who were using Eventbrite for meetups, for paid meetups. And uh, like Michael Arrington started TechCrunch Disrupt on Eventbrite as a, as a small event and then grew it into the conference. And uh, I'll never forget the day that I saw this node sort of start to form on the East Coast and it was speed dating events. So, you know, like the third coming of speed dating and in-person speed dating. Um, and, and I thought, whoa. And then over the course of a week, you started to see other speed dating events happen. And, you know, the, the, the point of that is uh, we really started to understand that event organization is a community sport and profession. You know, you have this tightly woven community of event goers, but also event producers. And once somebody started using a new technology, word of mouth was just incredibly strong mm -hmm. and has been from really day one. And so that was such a key unlock for us. And so we were off to the races from, from that point on. And then international growth started to happen faster. And, you know, 
it just like the organic growth of the company was very strong. Um, And like I said, we really didn't look for outside funding until we were past the point of break even. And really it wasn't about financials. It was about, we knew where we were going to go at that point. And we knew that we needed people to help us get there until then it really wasn't about people, right? It was about making the right decisions, building the right product. And just, we, we were live from day one. That's the other thing that sort of was so different from some of the products that are being built today. We were in the hands of customers from day one. Mm-hmm. And so we were iterating and fixing and polishing and what, and it was just, it's just been this relentless pursuit to build something that our customers are satisfied by, you know, customers are never going to be like uh, over the moon. They're always going to want more, obviously. They're always going to be like the 5 a.m. person in the coffee shop. Exactly. Exactly. But if they're satisfied, I mean, that is, that's amazing. And then you keep building on that. You keep building on that. And all of a sudden, you know, if you build a product that people love or even are satisfied by, and you offer them service that makes them feel loved, you start to build that, that irrational loyalty and unconditional love, which is really what I imagine is this, is this love brand. And along the way, as we started to find smarter people to bring in who, you know, were much smarter than ourselves, not, not a very hard thing to do, but in that, in the different subject subjects that we were covering, you know, for me, it was marketing, customer support, and finance. I started to understand the tie between the community that we wanted to build for our creators and what kind of relationship we wanted to have with them and the kinds of people we were bringing into our team and how the two were just completely intrinsically connected. Yeah. And I've heard, I've heard it described about you, but also just in our conversations, this, this idea about putting people first, right. And you got to a point where you started to call, uh, folks at, uh, Event bright, the brightlings, and you had different types. Bright camp, I think, and like, like, but a strong culture around people, uh, which seems to have been heavily influenced by you. So, like, how did that? How did that come about? And and uh, yeah, what what was that? What what was your role in all that? We were. It was right around 2010, and we had just so in 2008, we went out towards the end of the year to raise money. Mm-hmm. Not a great time. Yes. We met with 27 venture firms. Um, and so we signed with Sequoia Capital. And I remember waking up at the right after that process and having this, this nightmare. I was waking up from a nightmare. And the nightmare was basically somebody kind of came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, like, hey, you've been awesome. But we're a real company now. And you kind of need to, you're Kevin's wife. Like you kind of need to step aside and let us do our thing. You know, Kevin's got a role as CEO, but you don't have an obvious role anymore. Like I I had this nebulous title of everything. And yeah, exactly. I had a nebulous title of president. I had no background to speak of. Right. And I thought it was kind of like, well, now the big kids are going to take over. And all around us, the 2005, 2006 vintage companies were kind of going through similar experiences of hyper growth and really losing their identity through that process. Not a lot of people were talking about culture back then. It was thought of to be some very soft topic that people didn't really want to talk about. I felt and still do today 
for Eventbrite the way I felt for my firstborn. So I kind of knew that love and I knew it was very similar. And then I also felt like, well, could we do something differently? Like where, where could I actually add value and move the needle and not be in the way or just be some random hanger on her? <laughs> and so I came to the table with Renault and Kevin and I said, I think that I want to, right, I came to Renault and Kevin and I said, I think I want to come to the table of every major decision and put the brightlings first and like really be that I want to develop this part of our of our story and be the voice of the, of the of the yeah of the company. yeah I'm sort huh. of the like the archaeologist to go digging for what makes a great company the, the great. anthropologist yeah. yeah an anthropologist exactly yeah. Yeah. and you know I really wanted to think about what made great companies great not just great businesses but great companies yep and so with this aspiration of like our legacy is going to be a great company, which is in part a great enduring culture as well as a great business. I would go after the people part. And it was pretty natural for me because I'd been focused on the people part all along, right? Yeah. Uh, how, how do we find our customers? What do we say to them? What is the brand? How do we help them when they run into problems? And so I applied that to this problem or this opportunity of culture. And the first thing I learned was culture is really if you if you kind of strip it down to the, its essence it's a manifestation of the people who are at the company at that time mm-hmm. and certainly people can leave legacies in a culture but it's pretty amazing how quickly that gets swept out to see when someone leaves right and so and then somebody comes and they come with their ideas and their ideals of how to win and their baggage and like their past blueprints of what a couple, what, you know, how they were treated at this, at their previous company. So it's just like kind of always sort of amorphous thing that's building and moving. And it's more like, I remember somebody said, well, how are you going to preserve the culture? And I thought like, well, we're not, it's, the culture shouldn't be a bug stuck in ember. Yeah. You know, it should be this like amoeba and it should be like this really resilient sort of organism that's like you know that can that can withstand any any type of environment so i got to work on on that and at the same time we were really polishing and honing the brand and like what we would be as eventbrite and those two things are intrinsically connected as i mentioned before sure. so that's really where we created our values and then we started to just build this company and making those intentional decisions and instilling that early on in our our story, you know, as we went from sort of small team to bigger company, really made all the difference in the world. Like it, like like casting that die early on was really important. Um, and I'm I'm very very fortunate that I had the support of Renault and Kevin, right, to say yes, like you do this, and I was empowered to just go. So in a, in an interesting though turn of events. Uh your role must have been perceived as pretty valuable because before you know it, you're CEO in 2016. So like, what's up with that? You know, how did you go from wondering if you had a job to being CEO? The last guy did a terrible job. That's how I ended up. <laughs> he was sucking that. wind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said, it was funny. I said, you know, you can't, you can't really make 
I don't have the advantage of, of using the last person as the fall guy when I'm, you know, sharing a bed with them and want to stay married with them for the the rest of my life. So I had to, you know, uh, own everything that happened to us. No, I mean, I think that the time, you know, the time that I took over, so it was five years ago today that we announced that, um, there was a lot, there was a lot going on, but the benefit I had was, uh, a full alignment with the board mm-hmm. and B on the job training for a decade next to one of the greats. Yeah. It was hard because Kevin and I really love working together. So it was both, I think, an opportunity and a triumph for Kevin because he had mentored me into this position and also a really sad time. And I can say five years later, we still miss working together. And in fact, you know, sat side by side for 90 days through the early days of the COVID crisis. Um, And there's great things about that and challenging things about that. I mean, I think one of the things that we did really well operating together is that we divided and conquered. We just never got in in each other's business. And that allowed us to be both you know, have great sort of, um, surface area, uh, you know, uh, approach. And then second to get from point A to point Z, it's kind of like three times faster. And so, um, so Kevin did a really great job of kind of handing the baton to me and then stepping back and letting me really run the show in a way that was authentic, that it wasn't like people were wondering, well, is he in the background, you know, calling the shots as executive chairman. Um, But I learned a lot of hard lessons. I learned all, probably most of the lessons, I'm hoping near all of them, (laughs) the hard way. (laughs) Well, and you, you know, speaking of hard way, so so you, you went public in 2019, which most people don't really relish that experience as a new public company. I mean, it, it's it's pretty crazy to think about. So you you go public in 2019, and then 2020 comes around, and there's this pandemic. And like some businesses got accelerated by the pandemic, but I mean, if you're Eventbrite, you got a problem, right? I mean, you must have been here. You are a public company CEO, accountable to numbers and forecasts and guidance. It was brutal. It was brutal because we were, it was about half of our total volume was advanced to our event creators because they need to pay for vendors and venues. And that's a really long supply chain of people to try to collect money back from to refund the ticket buyers. Eventbrite's the merchant of record. Right, right. So we were looking at basically double our balance sheet outstanding in ticket sales that had already been advanced for creators for events that weren't going to happen. We had to figure out what to do about that as well as tell them that their events were likely not going to happen. And we don't have jurisdiction over, you know, what event plays off, but like we knew the writing was on the wall from the data that we had. So so those were two big, big problems. And then the third was, you know, that, that we weren't generating any revenue. That was, that was a big, that was another big problem. And so, um, and then, you know, underpinning all that, it was moving 1200 Brightlings to a work from home environment, very universal experience. So I won't go too far into that. Um, 
but essentially what we did was we moved, we moved very swiftly because my, my gut instinct was time to action was going to make all the difference in the world. And we saw this devastation probably earlier than most. And so we needed to use that. We needed to move quickly. And I wanted to, you know, the, it was like a, it was a three pronged plan. So the first part was decide knowing what we knew about our business, what would we do if we got to do it all over again? That's a positive question. That's a question that actually gets your creative juices flowing. And that question was the one that I asked our executive team. And so through that, we had this honed strategy, right? Of what are we going to focus on and what are we not going to focus on? Because not everything's coming with us. Um, And in that strategy, we then restructured the company. So it wasn't about cutting off limbs to try to save the kid. It was about what's the new company. So then, and it must be, I mean, little things, right? Where you just have to face the reality. Like you might have to raise more money under very unattractive conditions. You might have to decide not to pay vendors. You might have to decide to fire a bunch of people who've been great. It's like, but you don't have the luxury of thinking, how's this going to look? Or like, what, what? it's like live or die, right? It's like live or die. We announced our, our restructuring on April 8th. And what drove me to make that push and do it well was that not because I want to be good at a layoff, but because I wanted our heart to show through in that process for the hundreds of people who wouldn't be working at Eventbrite. And like you said, we're great people. I wanted to be able to put the full power of our company behind helping them land new jobs before the bottom fell out. And the second thing is, you know, if I tell you, it was hard to raise money in 2020. You probably have like a moment of, wait a minute, money's falling from the trees. Like we're in a full on SPAC attack moment. What are you talking about? Raising money in March and April of 2020 in a live events company. With with no revenue. With no revenue, like with this outstanding balance that doubled our, that was doubled. And no, no real prospects at revenue either, at least not clearly. No, nor any prospect of revenue. This is not a PSA. This is where your board matters. Yeah. And we had recruited a great board over the years. It was a very personal board of, of people who we weren't necessarily friends with before they joined the board, but we got to know over the years and that trust and camaraderie. We had 27 board meetings in 90 days. These were like real time, just moving mountains and to get that financing done with the partner that we ultimately got it done with Francisco partners, which I thought was a perfect match for what we needed. That was not obvious. That financing took on its own shape, which was to do, you know, public market convert when, you know, after we had announced our earnings and everything that, and then, and then we came back around, you know, a year later and, and did another public market convert. So I'd say like being a public company, that's actually a really good thing for us because we could, we could access this capital over time and have this sort of structured way to work out of it because in the end, we didn't see the devastating loss that we thought we could see from that outstanding balance of ticket sales. Here's what we discovered. When we gave our creators, we, we, we just kind of 
furiously started working on solutions for them to almost like reverse the engine of growth. When we gave them tools to refund their ticket buyers, to offer credits alongside refunds, to postpone and reschedule their event, they grabbed onto that. The second thing I learned is that these are community events. These aren't like faceless promoters that you're buying tickets from. This is your local venue. This is your local bookstore. Our events are the events that make up your life. You're the book reading on a Tuesday night and the yoga workshop on a Sunday morning. You're not going to go like willingly put that person out of business for a $15 ticket, which is the third point. Our average ticket price is, is below $50. So it wasn't and, you know, with, with Americans getting the financial aid that they got in the year, that wasn't the thing that people were coming after. Now, certainly by and large, people wanted refunds for events that weren't happening. And we put in motion a way to reverse the engine quickly and massively at scale, obviously going to negative revenue. But we ended up not seeing the sort of the devastating, you know, end of the company moment that, that we had contemplated. But I'm glad, I'm glad we we had to do everything to be prepared for that because otherwise you're just gambling the future of everyone's lives who works at Eventbrite. So at any rate, a year later, we're a leaner, stronger, faster company. We are focused on a core customer who uses Eventbrite at least monthly, but many of them use the platform weekly. We know who we are. We know what we're made of. And we're far more profitable. And that's a permanent shift. That wasn't just a in the moment, you know? And so going back to your original question about Eventbrite and the question around TAM, Eventbrite has always been a, a platform where we see new market creation happen. And so we're focused not on the tippy top of the pyramids. We don't compete with Live Nation, Ticketmaster, you know, large stadiums and arenas. And we're not focused on the birthday party, backyard, barbecue segment, which is more, you know, personal invitations. We focus on everything else and that long tail or the middle of the pyramid, however you're thinking about it, it's huge and it's constantly regenerating itself and it's constantly growing. And so I can give you numbers for sure that would make you feel like, okay, all right, this is a big market. And of course, over the years, we've amassed data and we've hired fancy consultants to back that up. There's really nothing that can, that can accurately size live experiences, the desire to connect and the ingenuity of creators to produce content for us to do that. Well, I mean, uh, for what it's worth, I think that what you and Kevin did in the face of COVID was one of the more legendary, brave, just courageous responses to an existential crisis to the company. Just serious kudos. So I'm so psyched that you did this. I Great really to see you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Starting Greatness podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you're new to the show, I hope you listen to our past interviews with legendary founders like Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, the Instagram founders, and Keith Raboy. I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at M2JR and subscribe to our newsletter for exclusive content and events at greatness.substack.com. Until we catch up again, 
I hope you'll never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. Thank you for listening.